This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. This week, we sit down with Fani Raju. He is a staff engineer at GitHub and lead on the GitHub package registry. He tells us what package registries are and why GitHub is uniquely suited to take them the next step in security, trust, and experience. This is an awesome chat. If you'd like to learn more about where your packages may be coming from in the future, uh, but it's also a fantastic lens into the great engineering and design thinking that is alive and well at GitHub and how the Dear GitHub letter sparked a new wave of innovation. Our sponsor this week is G2i. G2i is a platform built to help you do exactly that. It's made exclusively for React and React Native developers looking for remote contracts. I know personally what it's like to design a complicated life. My daughter was in and out of hospitals for her first three years of life, and work was one of the most stressful things to figure out during that time. Remote work made it possible for me to work, make my contributions, and stay productive, all while caring for her. And the ability to specialize meant that I could jump into projects with confidence, make a change, and move on. You don't quite get that when you're unsure whether or not today's card will have you in Rails, PHP, or Node, or some other framework that you haven't even heard of. And all of this is why G2i could be perfect for you. You get to work with the tools you know and in an environment that you control, or at least whatever environment that you find yourself in that week, month, or year. If you're not quite happy with your current level of work-life integration, G2i could be your next step. Visit g2i.co today, click the For Developers link, and find opportunities that are tailor-made for you. G2i, we vet, you hire, it's that simple. Funny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on here. (laughs) I am super excited to have you on. Um, I was talking with Emily, mm-hmm. and right after you guys announced the uh, GitHub package registry, I was like, "Hey, maybe you could put a good word in for me because uh, I'd love to. I'd love to try this thing out." And she sends me a screenshot, and uh, and she's like, "Hey, uh, you know, this guy's a super like GitHub fanboy. I'm sure that you'd be able to talk about uh, GitHub package registry on his uh, on his podcast if you give him access." And I was like, "Yes, 100. percent I would trade. <laughs> I'll trade podcast for uh, for access." Um, so tell me a little bit about you, what you're doing at GitHub, and uh, why, why you're excited to be on the show today, talking to all these React heads. Sure. Uh, my name is Funny. I'm a staff engineer here at GitHub, and what that means is that I work across a couple of different teams at the company, and building things, moving on, building other things, rebuilding things, taking things down. Um, and uh, I'm the lead developer for GitHub Package Registry at GitHub. Uh, I wanted to be on the show because Emily sent me that screenshot, and then she's <laughs> like, please give them access. And I'm like, absolutely, totally. Don't even ask, have to ask me twice. And once we did that, I was like, oh, do you want to be on the podcast? And I started asking her internally, who wants to go on it? And then everyone's like, you should. So, <laughs> yes, I'm here to talk about GitHub package registry and life at GitHub and uh, talk about my dog in case you want to do that. Awesome. Awesome. So how long have you been at GitHub? Uh, I've been at GitHub about uh, more than two years now. Wow. Uh, I started in May 2017. Okay. How long has uh, GitHub package registry been 
in your minds? How long have you been working on it? I think like, I, I would say like 11 years. And that's mostly <laughs> because when GitHub first started, there was the ability to host gems on the service. Uh, and a bunch of that has like stuck around. So I think like as the company goes through phases, you start thinking about what do you go after code hosting and uh it's not necessarily a completely solved problem yet. So we started looking at developer services just a little while ago. And this is one of them. Um, we, st- we did Git LFS, which was basically about like large file storage on GitHub. Yep. And I think um, like as you start thinking about protocols and data types, source code as it exists today on GitHub is a data type of, of string. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we have you can build an ASD on top of it, and then it becomes something that you work with. But at the same time, as we saw the like what are, what are developers doing? I look at it as um, code is intent. Like you write code, I, I intend to do something with this, and then package is action. So basically, that's how you distribute everything, and then that's how everyone gets to use your work. And um, like as we started looking at that, we were like, maybe we should like start looking at what's happening in that field, and what are the unique things about GitHub that we could bring to this. Um, we had a we have a releases project, and I think like people use releases today to publish raw binaries and then download them. Um, it's it's almost like curl bash. Yeah, right. uh, like you don't know what you're downloading, you don't know what's in there. A lot of the time, and it's like not strongly typed. The way that you talk to it is via the browser or just curl, and um, there's no versioning there unless you use Git tags. And I think like we were seeing a, a lot of these cases where people were starting to use. Uh, Git tags, which are supposed to be for source code mm-hmm. versioning, as also executable versioning, and we were like, maybe npm is pretty great about this. So let's like start looking at what this means for on top of GitHub. So that's kind of where it all started. I think the idea has been around for a long time. Um, it's just a case of like getting everyone together and then trying to come up with some coherent strategy. Because why build another thing? Yeah, exactly. There has to be some value to it. Right. So. So I want to get back to that, but like, how how long have you been actively working on on this iteration? So maybe the idea has been kind of like popping around in the past. Yeah. How long has this been? Like, hey, we should go after this. Like, I think we have a co- co- coherent idea of what this would look like. Yeah, I would say at least like the last eighteen months or so, because uh, eighteen months. The way we've been doing this is, uh, and just to give you like a little bit of history, when we first started out, we were like, okay, yeah, let's write Ruby Gems registry. And then we wrote the whole thing, and then it, it ran inside the monolith, inside the whole GitHub, github.com code base, as it is today. Uh, we started looking at it, and then we had operational problems with it because we were like, well, it's Ruby, so buffer bloat's happening. And also, the when it's loading up these huge files in memory, our unicorn workers are dying if you try to upload a file, <laughs> which is 50 megabytes. And we were, started looking at this. We were like, okay, let's keep that running. So that's a limitation of the system. So we built another one. And then as we built them, we built them vertically. They shared no commonality between the NPM and the Ruby Gems registry. And then we started thinking, maybe we were going about this the wrong way. We were trying to retrofit releases mm-hmm. to have an interface on top of it. So instead, we started building up from the ground up. Uh, I call it facts and opinions. Uh, a package name, package metadata, dependencies are all facts. Uh, regardless of NPM, Ruby Gems, Docker, anything, it's a fact. An opinion is what the client and the server use to talk to each other. That's the hmm. protocol and the serialization format. So NPM is an opinion for us, and uh, RubyGems is an opinion for us. And the way what they do is they all talk to this intermediate GraphQL layer. So the whole platform needed to be built up from built from the ground up. So we were working on I was working on pull request dependency graph, while at the same time also saying like we should introduce package versioning, package metadata, 
and things like that into the platform as we go along. Interesting. Interesting. So now one of the, I want to try to take a step back and just kind of like talk about what, like, what is a package registry? Like, I know that that's like a really, uh, maybe like a, a simple question, but I know that like for a lot of people, it's like their introduction to a package registry is they see a command, they type it into their prompt, and now they have, now they have some type of, you know, re- React boilerplate that they can start like developing React in. Um, and so that's really kind of the extent of their knowledge is that they have this little thing that gives them some magic code. What is the what is really the job of a package registry? Uh, that's a good question, and um, honestly, like a lot of developers today are consumers of certain things. Mm-hmm. So if you go to someone who's actually eating a burger, and then you tell them, "Well, this is how the meat was raised," they're like, "I don't care. <laughs> this is what I care about." So to answer that question specifically, um, think of a registry as basically an index, index slash list of all of the packages that are available. Mm. It does a couple of things. Uh, the first thing that it does, it gives you the ability to search that index. It's a service. And so when you run something like npm install, the first thing it does is it, npm install express. Uh, it goes to the configured registry using HTTP as the underlying protocol to see, do you have express? And the server's like, yes, I do. And I have 15 versions of them. Here you go. So the client at that point can use a couple of things. They can be like, just install the latest, which is what the default is most of the time. Or the client can say, give me version something or the other um, because that's what I want. Yeah. In that case, the client resolves it by saying, okay, I need, I know you asked for Express 1.6. Okay, here's 1.6. And then you start looking at it. And then it starts this recursive process of detecting, okay, Express needs Express API, Express REST. So it just goes on, starts downloading all of them. A package registry is a clearinghouse for packages. It's where people go to publish packages and also um, download them. So as a client, um, it's just like code. Code is read a lot more than it's written. Mm. And same thing for packages. Like we're seeing um, the statistics are like 20%, less than 20% publish and more than 80% download. Wow. Does that answer your question? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So a follow-up to that is that you have... it seems like each community has a package, right? Or a package, a package registry. Um, are they fundamentally different or are most of them pretty this pretty much the same under the hood? Um, under the hood, I think it... So the way I would look at it is each package management, um, this might not be true for everyone, but for definitely not for Java, the community or slash the uh, programming language that is actually behind this or framework that's behind this uh, package manager kind of informs the shape of the registry. Hmm. Uh, in case of NPM, um, it's pretty simple. It's CouchDB on the internet. And in case of uh, something like a Rust, where the program, the language itself is so pretty specific about how you handle memory constraints and how you write multi-processor code or multi-threaded code, the server kind of reflects that. Mm-hmm. Their server actually does a lot of specific things like validating that your package can be built or package can be downloaded. Interesting. And also ensures that none of your dependencies come from anywhere else. So they're a lot more restrictive about what they allow. Um, so to answer your question, uh, it kind of, they're a reflection of the basic, of the community that surrounds the package manager or the programming language. For something like Docker, it kind of almost looks like apt Debian. 
because Docker is basically an executable language, executable format that a lot of people, that's what they use it as. It's not necessarily a packaging format. It's an executable that you download every time. And um, so people who are used to building executables and then installing them and running servers, people who do sysops or devops, that's kind of what Docker ended up looking like because that's who it was built for. Right, that's right. That's your community. Interesting. So they all kind of take the shape of the like both the language and then also the community that that, yeah. that is using them. So that poses an interesting challenge um, in supporting a number of these communities, a number of these package registries for you. Um, what was it that led you to decide to support? Because um, it looks like right now you support uh, npm, Docker, Maven, NuGet, and Ruby gems. Was that something that you knew that you had to do right from the beginning? Or was it something that was kind of like this, hey, we could probably do this? Uh, I think it was a mix of both. <laughs> um, the thing is, like at a certain point, like a package registry almost becomes a civic service. It's like you have to build roads. And that's kind of what yeah. we, that's where we were going with this. And um, and building a package registry is uh, like 10% a technical challenge and a 90% policy challenge. Because uh, as we're talking about, like the communities take the shape, the packet servers take the shape of the communities. Uh, and technically, build supporting the NPM protocol or the Maven protocol is really not that complicated, or rather is straightforward because you implement a spec. But what do you do about un- delete policies? And what do you do about unpublished right. policies? And those policies are, uh, are where a lot of the meat of the problem is. Um, the way we went about this is by, we have an open source uh, uh, liaison inside the company. I mean, almost everyone is <laughs> GitHub. Uh, we started looking at it, and then we we, we thought about um, here's a few communities that we've seen interact uh, on GitHub, and also a bunch of communities that we've seen like that we're a part of. Uh, it's almost a passion thing because we were like we use Docker inside the company a lot, mm-hmm. so we we're like. We, where do we put these Docker images? We cannot start start spinning up custom registries for each team. Instead, we we're like, it would be great if the entire company could have one Docker registry that we could publish to. So we're like, great, we'll just make it. So we made one for internal usage, and that's where we got a lot of the usage. Initially, it was built to support our CI pipelines. Interesting. Um, because the way that we were building, let's say we have to build, deploy a Go application, we would have to go build everything on the virtual machine, on the CI machine. Instead, we just started downloading Docker images, and that's where we started. Um, so the way we picked the ecosystems was a mixture of, like, uh, technically we can do this, and also from a policy-wise, a lot of these maintainers for these ecosystems are pretty open, and uh, the communities themselves are really passionate and can offer us amazing feedback, and we can do a good job of supporting them. Yeah. So in terms of the policy, is that something that GitHub would have across all of registries, or is that kind of part of the spec for each of these registries? Do they have different policies on deletes and, and whatnot, um, or is that something that you decide and that'll be universal across the registries that you support? Uh, that's a really good question. I think it's... Um, where where it comes across as uh, autocratic is where GitHub decides. Uh, Maven, from now on, this is your publish policy or this is your delete policy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a non-starter. We cannot do that. Right. As a company, we cannot start, because there's already registries of record in each of these ecosystems that we support. So I think as much as possible, we would like to work with the ecosystem maintainers to mirror their policies. Um, so that's kind of why when they... And, there's also a couple of um, considerations about like billing. Like if you're paying for it, we can't be like, no, don't delete it. And they're like, what? <laughs> right. You're going to keep charging me whatever? This is like you're locked in. That's me. We'd get sued. Um, 
So in that case, we have to be very specific. So that's why we said, once we decided that all public packages are free forever, we were like, we need to rethink this. And then we went, we went back to the drawing board, worked with the legal, and also worked with a bunch of people in the community to figure out like what is a good step, what is a good middle step, and what's a good next step for us. Um, at a certain point, the platform, which is what we're calling all of the the thing that underlies all of the package registries, needs to be as unopinionated as possible. So. If a certain ecosystem comes up and then says, like, fine to delete, because uh, we can, everyone in our ecosystem always vendors their packages. Like, once you download it, you'll never download it again. Mm. In that case, well, I guess so. The underlying theory is that it should not be user hostile. If shutting down, if shutting down uploads of a package that contains certain version numbers is something that is implied across all of the package versions, that's extremely user hostile. So I think our principle is to be as user-friendly as possible while also uh, learning from all of the lessons that people have learned before us by maintaining and then running these ecosystem services. Yeah, it's really an interesting challenge. O- over the last uh, couple of years, it's been interesting to see some of the things that NPM has had to kind of discover as a company, you know, like kind of famously with LeftPad and, you know, um, ESLint had a package that was that got corrupted and... It's it's really interesting in seeing how they are going into more security of packages. And it seems like over the last um, year, I've been seeing more and more of that from GitHub. So what are some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of the, the security of packages and surfacing, um, surfacing that information to GitHub customers? Yeah, um, that's a good question. We've been thinking about this. So there's this thing called a supply chain attack, which is basically if you're... Of all of the things that you do to run code on a server or on your machine, um, there's a bunch of steps involved in it. writing it on your laptop, pushing it via Git or something else um, to a, a centralized server, and the centralized server redistributes the packages, and then somebody else consumes it and then runs it. I think there is no one-step solution to any of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ideally, when thinking about security problems, we try to come up with a threat model that identifies a lot of the threats and then says that certain threats are basically beyond our control. Someone losing their laptop, that's a threat model that we cannot control. (laughs) Right. So what we do is like GitHub is doing this thing with like 2FA and also like invalidating SSH keys. Basically, you can go to your account and then be like, I lost this laptop. Remove this SSH key so I cannot push anymore. Um, When it comes to packaging, now the entire world is basically um, going to be affected if we mess up. Yeah. So we, we think about a couple of things. I really love Phil Hack's work on this, and I miss him. He should come back to GitHub. <laughs> uh, I love his work on this because he's been thinking about this space for a long time, and a lot of our ideas align. I think you can start thinking about the artifact slash package that you're publishing and downloading and moving around and how do you ascertain its uh, identity and its uh, any vulnerabilities contained inside it so you treat that as an artifact and then you treat the um, all of the systems between the person writing the code and the systems distributing the code for example ci systems which are responsible for building the packages and also the person do you trust this person? Mm-hmm. In case of something like EventStream where maintainer burnout, or if I'm, I don't know if it was EventStream, but there was an, at least one of these NPM packages where a maintainer burnout or they were compromised in a certain way where they had to like, somebody else came in and was able to publish a mal- malicious version. If we had CI 
because they use the same CI systems and the same mm-hmm. packages to publish it. Um, depending on just one of these avenues is really not that is really not complete. So, in terms of package identity itself, um, there's this thing that's public. It's called uh, uh, SSD slash context triggered piecewise hashing. Uh, it's a fuzzy hashing algorithm that allows you to differentiate between two different hashes. So uh, sc- colleges and schools use it for detecting plagiarism in essays. Oh, okay, and things like that. So it can tell you the similarity between two different pieces of text. Uh, and technically for some things which are text-based languages or interpreted languages like Python and uh, uh, Ruby and NPM, uh, we can sort of do this thing where we detect or we calculate the piecewise hash for a pack for all of the code contained within a package and then we do the same thing for the repository and then we compare the two and then we're like the code inside this package is or rather 60 percent of the code inside this package came from this repository do you trust us and basically pushing being as transparent as possible about what's inside the package that they're installing um, but i think like just showing that on a web page is not good enough we need to have like some sort. What does that mean? What does sixty percent mean? Yeah. What does seventy percent mean? Like, is that a good number or is it a bad number? How how vigilant do I need to be about kind of inspecting the rest of the the changes here? Yeah, exactly. And then now you have the cognitive load of not just trying to figure out which package you use, but also pa- keeping these numbers in your head. And then as a developer, some someone installing the package is like, I really don't care. Sixty percent, ninety five percent, I don't care. I just want to get my work done. So there is a good balance between like security and then. Um, like basically uh, having obtrusive services that prevent you from doing what you want to do in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting because you don't want to be, take on a paternal role, right? You, and obviously you don't want to have to, yeah. to have the responsibility of saying like, Hey, we give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down, you know, having that, that responsibility land on you. Um, but at the same time, there's a, an ecosystem challenge where like, you know, web development is becoming more and more popular and, you know, the people, uh, who are just getting in are are most likely to get you know be vulnerable to these types of attacks and they have the least information to know what to do with them so there's this kind of like middle ground where you have to kind of at least maybe make it scary enough so they realize that it's a dangerous thing <laughs> that they're doing yeah that's the sad, that's the scary part that, like you need to be secure by default mm-hmm. but i think if someone um Who's it was probably a really early career, even in high school, like learning to like program and then they install NPM, install Express, or something else, and then they're like, oh yeah, I found this like open, uh, like Passport GitHub, but Passport is misspelled, <laughs> Passport login and Passport is misspelled, yeah. and then they just install it, and then they're like, oh, this just works. When instead it's like siphoning credentials off and then sending it somewhere else. Um, so yeah, I think like as a community, we need to be. I don't know about. We cannot be paternalistic and then say, like, this is what you use, this is what you don't use. Yeah. I think uh, security practices need to almost be, like, something that are, like, more basic to a developer's understanding. Mm-hmm. Because package manager security is also something that everyone needs to know about. But at the same time, um, being a developer is already so much work. <laughs> uh, so putting another concept in your head is also difficult. So I think you, if you see any of those like blog lists, which are 10 things every developer should know about security, about HTTP, about caching, like it needs to become that. Basically, uh, it needs to be obvious what is the right thing to do. Yeah. Without yeah. you telling them, this is what you do. Now, you sent me an interesting article um, by PhilHack Um, called The Problem of Package Manager Trust. And he proposed something that I hadn't heard before, but I thought it was really interesting. But he was talking about um, really focusing on um, kind of 
trusting people and organizations and that as those organizations and those people change that that's actually more of a security threat than you know uh you know maybe code specifically i, I might be bot- uh, botching that a little bit um but the, the idea that is that right now we we don't really provide a lot of that information about the 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 group that made the code. And he actually said that GitHub is in kind of like a really interesting position to maybe have some of that information and provide that as part of the health of a package. Um, is that something that you consider when you think about the value that GitHub can add to uh, package registry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing is like, as part of the supply chain, um, Let's take an example of a healthy organization. And for that, what that means is that there isn't a lot of churn in certain parts of at least the four people producing the package. So do the people, the community, do the contributors on the repository slash organization match the people working on the package? And I think like that's provenance where we say that like, okay, now there is a very direct correlation between these packages and this organization. Once we get there, we can start saying things like, hey, this organization added a random person. <laughs> and... Um, Basically, when you do a diff between two different versions today, you can diff the symbol tree or diff the uh, files of, that are available in them. But honestly, I'd like to be able to diff the organization statistic or the organizational makeup. Interesting. Uh, this package had, the organization had six people when this package was published. Save that off somewhere. Um, next per, next version, which was after no activity for two years, another version is published. <laughs> and then now there's like 25 people. Like, this is a completely new place. Right. Like, do you even trust these people anymore? And that goes back to the same thing. Like, let's say we give the people that number. There were 20 people added to this organization. What do you think? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Who are they? What are their names? What have they yeah. done before? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then you start, like, um, you're aggregating individual trust scores to a certain level mm-hmm. to our organizational trust score. Um, while I say that, I think GitHub does have a couple of ways of like dealing with this. So, for example, we have verified domains in organizations. So, if you're uh, Slack HQ on GitHub.com, um, you and if you verify that you have an email address from that domain and do a couple of other things, then you have a verified domain. Mm-hmm. So, I think like um, if people can impart that saying like, "Hey, your package was published by a verified domain," they'll be like, "Okay, I trust that to a certain extent. That's really good." Um, the other thing is also like controlling where the package is being built. For example, if something like uh, GitHub Actions has a custom Docker image or custom action that builds NPM packages and pushes to GPR, has nothing else on it, and then we somehow prove that this is what was running on the system um, to a certain degree, not completely, not to 100%, then we can say that like we know where this package was created. We know how it was created. We know the organization that built it. So this is great. Please continue. It's like verified uh, accounts on Twitter. So yeah, we want to get to verified packages. I think there's going to be a lot of steps to get there. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there's a balance between uh, developer choice and this uh, overarching top-down approach of like, yes or no. I think I think this is something that's, that's really interesting is that we we wouldn't just let someone like kind of come into the office for the day, have a computer and then commit code into our, our repository. But that is something that is possible. The more we depend on these package registries and just kind of like, don't kind of like have like a blind eye to the stuff that we're, we're installing. Uh, So I really like this, um, the, the ideas that you have for kind of like pushing towards like verified packages. 
Um, now, you mentioned um, GitHub Actions, and this is something that is really interesting to me specifically. Um, right now, I have our, our application is on a mixed stack. So we have mm-hmm. um, Rails, and then also we have like a bunch of um, NPM stuff in, in, in the front end. Um, and then we have some you know stuff that Ops does, but I don't know anything about that. So I'm, I, I don't think about it. Um, but we have stuff that we're publishing to both of those um, package registries mm-hmm. um, for, for use by the teams. Um, and so we have like two, you know, we have maybe, you know, a bunch of different repos like set up for that. But our JavaScript stuff is all in like a, a mono repo, which is nice. Uh, it seems like now with uh, between GitHub Actions and the new package registry, we could actually merge those things into like one repo and then kind of like have those build and like deploy to two different pra- package registries. Um, is that is is that true? Is that something that seems kind of like a killer feature for uh GitHub package registry and GitHub Actions. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, like if you look at what Actions is doing, um, the concept of mono. When we started looking at parts of package registry, the the reason that it's super interesting for me and super useful for me is that we have a couple of I have a couple of mono repos, which produce um, Ruby gems code and also NPM code, and uh, uh, a bunch of Maven artifacts out of it. It's basically the client repository for one of our libraries inside the company. And in the past, we would have to like sign up for three different services and publish them there. Today, we put everything in one registry, and then we use Actions to actually instrument a lot of that work. So on push, on merge of a certain PR, or when it receives a certain comment, we just kick off, kick off a workflow that says, okay, publish the NPM client. Okay, great. Now publish the RubyGems client. And now publish the Maven client. And all of that goes into the same repository. And I honestly don't even have to leave the ecosystem because I don't need to manage so someone who has like a, a personal access token for GitHub, GitHub to push GitHub code has a couple of additional scopes, and now they have the ability to use that for packages too. So yeah, absolutely. Using Actions and GitHub package registry, you're now in this world where your entire development lifecycle can be on the same host, um, and I think that's really powerful, given your risk model and your risk affinity. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that was one of the big. Uh... I guess quality of life changes for me uh, was when we started, you know, mono repos became popular and like the, the tooling got a little bit better for being able to, to tag them and, and whatnot. Um, but it's still like now I, I want what we're talking about here where, where it's like now all, all my code, like I don't, I don't care at all, like where it ends up. Like I just want all of it in one place. I want one repo. I want it all versioned together. Like this is where I have my bucket of work that I contribute to the company. And that seems like it's getting closer and closer with the, uh, with GitHub Actions and uh, now the GitHub package registry. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, if you look at, um, like, let's say that you're an enterprise, and then if you're using services to talk to each other, and I publish, like, search service, and some team across the company is like, I want to use a client to talk to your search service. We're like, here's search client Ruby, here's search client NPM, mm-hmm. and those are different packages, different repositories. Instead, we're like, here's search clients, and that is a package registry slash repository where the code for building these clients and also all of the client packages just lives there. And they don't need to do that anywhere. And um, you talked about actions in GPR. The packages to build actions are stored on GPR in the actions repository. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. <laughs> and the uh, GPR uh, integration tests that we run like every couple of hours, uh, all of them use like Docker images and NPM packages, which are stored again on GPR. That's awesome. <laughs> So one thing I, I find really fascinating about the, the mono repo structure, and you've mentioned this, is 
is that idea that you can kind of like build repos around teams as opposed to like this is this is a, the repo for the thing that does the thing and then having like 10,000 repos, you know, a, a, across stacks and, and whatnot. It's just kind of like, hey, this is the bucket where all of the this team does their things that they contribute to the to the rest of the application. And I really like that. And I like that you're building tools that, that model that um, that type of organization. Uh, is that because GitHub kind of works that way? Or um, is, it, is it something a little bit more intentional? No, absolutely. Um, GitHub runs on GitHub. Uh, everything inside GitHub uses GitHub, which includes HR, legal, uh, the people who run events for us. Our social media team uses Twitter to figure out how to, what to tweet and things like that. So um, the concept of teams is integral to, the concept of community is integral to GitHub. I think it's a it's a question of uh, or rather it's a progressions model for companies and also for teams, for managers slash leads, um, which comes to you you build features. You're, you're a developer, right? Next thing you do is you build services and then you build products. I think at the top of the pyramid is you build teams that can do anything. Mm. So GitHub wants to build teams, and then those teams should be capable of doing anything. I love this idea. I love the idea of building around teams and then kind of, you know, going going from there as opposed to like starting at at a different level, like starting with code or starting with, you know, an application or whatnot. Like teams is, I couldn't agree more with you there. So GitHub seems right now, like the last couple of years just seems like it's been on fire. Uh, does that was there some type of change that happened? Uh, I know that there was a, a period of time where some, you know, GitHub, you know, users were kind of like frustrated with the pace of development on like certain features. And then it seems like all of a sudden, like you just turned like a, a fire hose on and all of a sudden we're just getting all the stuff that people have been asking for. Uh, what changed? Oh, uh, oh yeah. This like tiny little company that's only worth a trillion dollars acquired us. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not to be sarcastic, but, uh, I think the way it works is um, a lot of the time there's you need to build about build up a bunch of primitives before you can build like larger team, larger services. When we saw the dear, I was really upset about the dear GitHub email, and a lot of people internally were honestly like, um, we kind of referred it all the time now because uh, mm-hmm. I used to work on this thing called Entity uh, Framework at Microsoft back in the day, and I remember seeing that letter from the community that said this is not what we want. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's hurtful. But at the same time, honestly, like you need rea- you need a reality check sometime or the other, because if you sit within your uh, microcosm and your really myopic community and you don't listen to any voices that are not complementary, you fall into this thing where you're like, oh, we're doing the right things. Um, not to say that GitHub wasn't, but I think like external communication of the stuff that we were working on was basically not as amazing as it should have been. Um, we were building a bunch of like really good primitives internally that have led to the growth or the explosive growth right after. It's really interesting. Um, Saranyak Barak, we, we, we talked a couple episodes ago, and she said something really similar, like this idea that that type of feedback can be really hard, but at the same time, you realize like people want you to solve it. Right. And so it's it's like a mixed bag. Right. Because they're not asking somebody else. Right. Like they, they you have their attention. And so that's a good thing. But like it can be so hard to like hear that feedback. And so I can imagine like how demoralizing getting that letter and being like, oh, crap. Like, I, I, I think the way that the letter I mean, that's a really good point. What I loved about the way the letter was framed is uh, and this is something like 
the product team for GitHub is not the employees that work inside the company. It's not just mm -hmm. the employees who work inside the company. The product team for GitHub is every one of the people who commits code to the website. That's everyone. So I think this was like the way I look at it now is that this was uh, feedback from a teammate. <laughs> and uh, the, the way the letter was worded was more in terms of like, this is what we want. Yeah. I think it wasn't a burn letter, uh, which was basically like, here's all the ways in which you suck, which is, <laughs> which honestly was also fine. I think um, sunlight is the best disinfectant. If there is things that in our community that we are not addressing or we don't see because that's not our community, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, Nat, really Nat, the new CEO, really talks a lot about like customer obsession. And honestly, like the entire company believes in it. We might not have had the specific wording for it. We called them super fans in the past. Um, everyone who's a super fan is basically responsible for our success. Everyone who commits code to the to GitHub, be person pushing a two line documentation change or uh, Ansible playbook change or pop or open sourcing their amazing products on GitHub, is a customer. And I love that we got that feedback. And it was hard, mostly. Uh, Emotionally, because you think you're doing an amazing job all the time, <laughs> yeah. but then you need a reality check, and that's good. Um, and I'm glad that the new growth and the new am amount of features coming out of the company are also being recognized. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the philosophy of customer repossession real quick? Oh, customer obsession. Not oh, obsession. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> customer obsession, which is um, uh, a case of like every team inside the company. For example, uh, Steve Riker slash Laser Lemon, who works on uh, security advisories. If you saw the thing that shipped at uh, uh, Satellite, uh, he's responsible for building a bunch of these services out. But then instead of looking internally and then looking working with a bunch of maintainers, he just went on Twitter and then said, like, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Describe, uh, we are, I'm trying to build a solution, but uh, I'm trying to see if this solution, this solution has a known problem or if the solution is looking for a problem. So I think like going out there and then being vulnerable in front of a large audience to say that, like, I really care about what you have to say. Please tell me. So I think um, at least in the past year, these communication channels have become a lot wider. Uh, Twitter, emails, and like the weekly um, maintainer call that Nat has, amongst other things, a lot of people ping him for accessing to GPR. So I think like <laughs> there's this thing nice. where we, we live to serve the customer, which is true. And uh, we need to be obsessed with making everyone's life as easy as possible and basically listening to them. We might not have answers to everything at the same time, but listening to them is what you need to be doing at all times. I really like this this idea that this was kind of like a, a kick in the pants, that you had had this war chest of like engineering achievements that you've made. Like you said, you had, you'd been spending a lot of time on getting the primitives right. Um, and But then this was kind of this, this inflection point where you're like, okay, people need more from us. And so maybe kind of like coming out of your shell a little bit and then going into like, okay, like time to like time to kick the <laughs> kick the tires on this thing and like get it going um is that a fun environment right now to kind of ha have this you know maybe a little bit more faster pace of release and features uh it's a really fun environment i i love it i think um seeing the, our customer community as part of our team actually goes both ways hmm. so the way i say that is if i'm building something and it is not as amazingly polished as i want it to be but i still i'm still going to show it to my team and that's where we start thinking about our customers too. We're like, we built this thing. Uh, what do you think? And not being afraid to be wrong yeah. is something that is actually permeating the entire company. If we build something, we put it out there. For example, the delete policies. We started out by saying, deletes are allowed. You know what? Whatever. Do whatever you want. <laughs> A week later, like two days later, everyone's like, oh my God, please stop. 
you have learned nothing. <laughs> We're like, that's true. Let's go back and actually relearn the lessons. And then we came back and said, yeah, okay, that was wrong. We'll disable deletes for now. Uh, and that's why we talk about like policies being something that you learn. Um, it's an electric environment within the company where everyone is excited to be build, working on the stuff that we are. And the best thing is at no point, I don't think this has ever been true of GitHub, about if you're wrong, that's fine. Just move on. The company has adopted this growth mindset where it, I don't care about whether you're right or wrong. Just let me know that you learned something from it. And uh, that permeates everything from all the way from C- the CEO to our interns. Yeah, you know, I really love this. I, this has come up on the show a lot, but this idea, and, and you framed it so beautifully, the idea that your customer is part of your team. Uh, and, and, and so often we kind of like cloister ourselves away and we're like, hey, I want to get this thing perfect before I show it to the world, right? But thinking about it as like, that's part of your team, right? And getting their feedback, you know, earlier on, um, it, it seems like that's just a big shift that's happening right now in in product in general, right? Is is that people want to be involved in that process. They want to be invested. They want to be the super fan. And like, if you don't let them, they're going to move on to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. I, and it, it also depends on like your customer segment too. Like our customers are developers, mm-hmm. right? really smart people. I think there is, there is a certain sense of uh, like a l- much larger companies who take like two, three years to develop a product and then bring it out to the company, even though it's not, uh, it didn't require that. It can almost be like a point of hubris. I know what you want. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's completely wrong. You don't know what, you, what they want because you're not that person. Um, and the company internally has a bunch of like ways of running beta programs which is where people sign up for a wait list and then you get it allowed in based on some criteria. And then we collect feedback and we'll, and make sure that systems don't die when you're using them. It's actually really good because we have this breathing room on top of us. Uh, in the uh, in other companies that I worked at, like if you ship something and then two weeks later something dies, then you're like, holy shit, am I, is my career in trouble? <laughs> uh, and honestly, not a GitHub. It's, it's a case of like, this is failing and I know why it's failing and this is what we learned from it, then everyone applauds it. Everyone is like, thank you, because the next time I do that thing, I'm, I want to make sure that I learn from you. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's great. So what is some of the, the really great feedback that you've gotten so far in uh, running this beta program and getting the uh, public information? Oh, uh, I think the biggest thing that happened when I predicted that the first set of feedback that we'll get is people wanting like more package registries (laughs) (laughs) of course and that's what happened like everyone's like i want php i want python i want i want i want conda i want uh, conan i want a lot of these things and i'm like i wish uh i really want to work on them too i think uh that's the the value is immediate Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone who even like as you mentioned like the, the basically a lot of those roadblocks are removed um the value is immediate and i think i never thought that we would have to um so the way that these conversations actually happen when you do product announcements is that they have levels the first level is like here's why you want this we have skipped that level completely (laughs) so now everyone is at the i want more i want more of this i want more of that so um top level feedback is like we want more package registry types and uh please let me into the beta and (laughs) of course that was me (laughs) <laughs> well, here you are. <laughs> um, and the po- the policy decisions are also like really, really uh, important and useful. We don't want to just build a product. We want to build a community of people who mm-hmm. are using these using these services, and we want to like learn from their experiences. 
The mono repo is another example. People um, traditionally at GitHub, like if you see pull requests and all of those things, they've been built to serve a person building a team building multiple services within the same repository in mono repo because that's what that's what GitHub's entire source code is, and um, people have reacted really positively to that like hey all of my package registries are now in the same repository awesome um and i think like um yeah more package registries <laughs> so it seems like people are really it seems like people are really getting it um with your kind of uh, I- I- ideology of like this idea of facts and opinions do you think that once you kind of get your feet under you with the package registries that you have that it'll be easier to bring um kind of existing and newer package registries online as they you know become popular yeah absolutely um brian clark the pm who's, who owns the open source maintainer persona is a huge advocate of uh, open sourcing these opinions because the facts themselves are stored through graphql currently and then uh, as we go at some point when those facts are available to everyone for example these are package manager primitives. Mm-hmm. Create a package, create a version, upload a file, simple things, and set metadata on the thing. And then the shape of the thing is handled by this opinion layer. Um, we want to get to a point where, I don't know when it's, because it's we have so much work to do right now to ship. Sure. Uh, we want to get to a point where we can basically, you can run the package registry for something in your enterprise, but then all of the data for that is stored on GitHub. Uh, if you think about it, it's basically like running a front end for something. <laughs> you run the front end in your enterprise or within whatever deployment you have, but the back end is the package manager primitives that live on github.com. So now you upload packages through your internal services, but then you can go to github.com and search for packages and then they'll turn up there. Um, there's a bunch of work that needs to happen there. So uh, yeah, that's kind of where we want to get to. Nice. Well, uh, I know that you have a lot of work to do, so I want to respect your time and let you get back to the important work. Um, but where can people find out more about uh, GitHub Package Registry, uh, find out about you and your work, and uh, I guess just get connected to all that's going on? Sure. Um, for GitHub Package Registry, we I would just listen to the GitHub blog. We have a bunch of exciting new updates coming out pretty soon, uh, which I'm really excited for, based on feedback from the community, definitely. Uh, uh, so that's GitHub Package Registry. Um, for me, just follow me on Twitter, P-H-A-N-A-N-I-R-A-J-U-Y-N. Or go to my blog that's hosted on a GitHub pages, fanatic.github.io. Fanatic.io. Uh, I love, I, I have to say, when I was... Um, when we were we were chatting, I was like, I was like, I love this fanatic thing because I'm I'm fantastic on like a bunch of things. <laughs> I was like fanatic. I love this. Uh, I love this idea of taking your name and then just kind of like moving it into uh, some like kind of really excited version of your. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm fanatical about a lot of things. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Fanny, for your time. I really appreciate um, you telling us all about uh, what's coming up with GitHub Package Registry. I am super excited about this. Uh, I love the work that you're doing. I, I am a, uh, a big fan of, of GitHub and the way you're working teams and the way you're thinking about products and features. Uh, it's just really, really exciting to watch. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of React Podcast. I definitely got more than I expected with this one. Thank you, Funny, for your terrific insights about software design. I'm still mulling over the ideas of facts and opinions and how to see the customer as part of the product team. 
Thanks to G2i for supporting this show. They would love nothing more than an opportunity to support you personally on your journey as a React developer. Go to g2i.co today and find remote career opportunities handpicked for your experience. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week. Thank you.